let's talk about the year of Jubilee. This was a rather mysterious part of the sacred scriptures in which God commands that every 50 years, all debts, all debts would be completely forgiven. Now, this sounds perhaps a little familiar to what people are calling the Great Reset after COVID-19, where all debts will be forgiven, where perhaps people won't own as much, maybe nothing at all, but we would have this idealized world, a great restart of our economy in which no one had any debt at all. It might sound a little bit idealistic, but so is God's system as well in the Old Testament. Indeed, in the book of Deuteronomy, God says that there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you with the land which the Lord gave you as an inheritance to possess. Now, this might sound a little bit strange. Didn't Christ in the New Testament say that the poor will always be among us? And yes, he absolutely did. And this passage in Deuteronomy certainly is not suggesting that people won't fall on hard economic times, or even if you disobey, you won't be scattered amongst all the nations, dispossessed of all land whatsoever. Rather, what is being specified here in Deuteronomy 15 is the promise that if the system of economic stability is followed, by the Old Testament standards, by the strictures that Leviticus lays out, then there will always be a place for the poor to fall, always be a brother to help him up. And that's exactly what the Jubilees offered. But to really understand the Jubilees, we first have to understand this idea of redemption. Now, I'm not speaking here about salvation in the eternal sense, but rather buying and selling during a time of need. In Leviticus 25, this whole system is specified. Financial hardship falls on most everyone at some point in their life. This could be either because they were being foolish with some decisions that they were making, or there were some external factor that they could not foresee. And when those times come, God has a system ready to take care of them. It starts out with a very basic level of severity. When somebody is not able to say, pay their bills, they need to sell some of their property. In verse 25 of Leviticus 25 says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his next of kin shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Now you hear in this, this, this idea of the next of kin, and to be, to be able to understand exactly what this means, we have to understand that Israel as a whole had a tier level in terms of its social order. The most basic level was the family. The level up from there was the clan. From there up, you have one of the 12 tribes. And then as a whole, you have the nation of Israel. And it falls to the brother, the closest member of the family, the lowest tier to take care of the one who falls into hard economic times. Now, why is this exactly? Well, let's contrast that to our own age. If I fall on hard economic times and need to sell some of my property off, I'm gonna put it on the market and somebody's gonna come and buy it. But being in a place of desperation, I'm not in a good stance to make a good negotiator. They're probably going to take advantage of me in some way. But for my brother to come along and to buy my possession from me, 
He's not going to do that. Maybe you don't have the best of brother, but most of the time, he's able to sympathize with you in a way that no stranger really ever could. But this isn't just good for the brother who needs the help, but for the brother who is needed to help. If you think about it like this, the brother actually has a responsibility not only to be his own brother's keeper, but also for his own soul to be able to say, I will gift you what you need. I will be there for when you are in trouble. This Catholic principle of subsidiarity is found right here in the Old Testament commands. Now, the next level of severity, if beyond needing to sell one's possession, is needing to get a loan. And that too, God specifies in verse 35. And if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall maintain him as a stranger and sojourner. He shall live with you. Take no interest from him or increase, but fear your God. So at first, he needs to sell his possessions. Then if things get worse, he needs to get a loan. And if the loan is not enough, then he needs to sell himself as an indentured servant. Verse 39 says, And if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. So those are the three stages of what needs to happen if you fall into hard economic times. Your brother is supposed to come and help you. Brothers, you are supposed to help those your own siblings when they fall on these tough economic times. But of course, this doesn't really solve the problem. People still then have mass equality. Society as a whole has great inequality if you go through these redemptive stages. And that is specifically why the year of Jubilee was instituted. It's not just basic debt forgiveness if you hadn't finished paying off your loan. It's actually a restorative moment where your land is given back to you, where you are no longer an indentured servant, but actually have freedom once again to be able to cultivate productive property, your land, your family's land. In verse 13 of, of Leviticus 25, God says, in this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. But what is his property if he actually sold it off? Well, Joshua 13 through 21 contains God's equitable division of the new land of Canaan to all the clans of Israel. Now, this resembles the old Catholic doctrine of the universal destination of all earthly goods. This idea that when God created the world, he gifted it not just to one man, Adam, but to all of humanity. This cosmic gift of creation was not something that's designated for just some, but for all. So in this year of Jubilee, the initial gift of creation is given back to all of humanity. After all, the land is actually not anyone's in particular. I can't claim to have an absolute right over my home or my land. As God says in verse 23, the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. And so we have to be able to say 
that people should welcome, be welcomed back onto this property because I only am a steward of it. I am not the Lord over it. I am not the sovereign over this land. Private property comes into play here, obviously, in a, in a very big way. And the Catholic Church has always said that private property is not something that is metaphysically real, that's deep in the marrow of the bones of reality, but rather is a pragmatic solution to an otherwise rather troubling system. And this is actually reflected in the way in which people sell their land to others when they're in need. So in that first level of severity, it's specified in Leviticus that according to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. According to the number of years for crops, he shall sell you. So in other words, if it was 20 years since the last Jubilee, you have 30 years until the next one. And so you, your valuation of the land was based upon how, much, how many crops you could grow in those 30 years. In other words, the selling of the property was based upon the use of it. How much use of the land could you actually gain with the time that you have left before the land needs to be returned? So captured in all of this is this understanding that the land is the Lord's and that we merely have the use of it. This is fulfilled most of all in the commons of the Levitical priests, that they did not, did not actually have even private ownership of any portions of land, but rather all the land was commonly used, much like what we find in, the, in medieval Christendom when we all become the new priests of the new covenant. But this is all particular to the land. It's not just for any assets whatsoever, but productive assets in particular. God specifies this in verse 29. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a whole year after its sale. For a full year, he shall have the right for redemption. In other words, if somebody needs to sell their house to get some profits, he will actually have a full year to buy back this house. But afterwards, if it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house that is in the walled city shall be made sure in perpetuity to him who bought it throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. In other words, the Jubilee does not apply to all assets, but to productive property in particular. To zoom out to 10,000 feet for a very quick moment, the entire law is God's attempt at re-inculcating his people into true humanity, into a way of life that they were originally created for. That means that God is taking what they know, what their habits and exposures are, and reforming them, changing them ever so slightly to give them, to give them a new vision of who he is and what they should be living as. So what were they exposed to? The Babylonians themselves in ancient Mesopotamia actually had a system of jubilee. Most of the time when new kings came to power, they would forgive all debts completely. And obviously this is a great thing. For those of us who have been in debt, we know how much it weighs on us, how much it is on our minds. And so being forgiven of that is a great grace. 
but there were a few motivations that were not so sanctified amongst the kings. Namely, they wanted to ensure that there was nobody else who could control any of their own subjects. So what is that, exactly does this mean? Well, most of the debts in the ancient world were because of taxes. The king would demand taxes from their people. The people would not have enough money to be able to pay those taxes. And so they would go to a wealthier citizen. And that wealthier citizen would pay the taxes on their behalf. Of course, this would be a loan and an interest-bearing loan. So they would actually have to pay more for the taxes. The subjects, the poor subjects, would have to pay more in taxes than they otherwise would have been. And this means that they were actually subject to those wealthier citizens. And those wealthier citizens had a level of sway, persuasion, control over those poor subjects. And that means, in a certain sense, that he actually had a rival power to the king. And so the, to the king, to ensure that any of those subjects would not become too powerful to overthrow his own power, would forgive all debts. All debts completely. And this would be done rather arbitrarily for the most part. These were not regular debt forgivenesses. It was only when the king was being threatened. And these debt forgivenesses would actually spawn quite a bit of fidelity in the hearts of the subjects. They were given such a great gift that they then wanted to be faithful to the one whom they could never actually repay. Christ himself says this in the Gospels, actually. He notices this phenomenon when he asks Simon, who is more grateful, the one who had the smaller debt forgiven or the one who had the greater debt forgiven? There is this sense of fidelity, of loyalty that emerges for someone who gives such a great gift. But what you find changed in the Old Testament law from in, in contrast to the Babylonian strictures is that there is a regularized debt forgiveness and it's not instituted by any sovereign other than God himself. He is instituting this new command to ensure that there are no rival sovereigns, that that king who is fighting off all the oligarchs, tempting, attempting to usurp his power, is now God himself attempting to usurp the attempts of the human sovereign at achieving his own form of earthly power. But there's one last thing that we should note about the Babylonian Jubilee. What happens when that poor person has his debts forgiven? He, unlike the Jews, did not actually have his land restored to him. In other words, once he was poor and debt-free, he didn't have a, a manner in which to make more money. He did not have any productive property. And that is what the Jubilees of Leviticus 25 actually solved. It gave productive property to the poor. It returned land to them to, to ensure that they were actually able to care for themselves, to take care of themselves, and actually to be able to flip positions all of a sudden, not just to be cared for by the community in the redemption system, but actually to care for others through the redemption system. Now, the U.S. economy today is mainly full of people who are still up to their eyeballs in debt and do not have productive property. 
we complain or we hear people complain so often about folks not even not even being able to own their own home. But what is good about owning your own home? It's not a productive asset. It is almost hardly an asset at all, actually. If anybody owns their home, they know that it's almost more of a liability than an asset. It costs so much money to upkeep every year. And yes, it does a great service for the family. I'm so grateful for my own home, but it doesn't actually help me take care of my family beyond putting a roof over their head. In fact, I need to ensure that I have business outside of the house to ensure that I can keep the house. The entire system today is broken. We need to have an understanding of productive property, of true ownership in this sense that God lays out in Leviticus. And I think there's something particularly special about the land. The land is not just one productive property amongst many. Having equity in a company is excellent. It's very good. It's important in certain circumstances. But the land is actually more of a direct way which we have contact with God. He even specifies in the very next chapter after Leviticus 25 that if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. The land is a big theme in the Old Testament. It comes up over and over again. And I think there's a very particular reason for this. It's because this is the way in which we involve God more in our economy, or rather the access point that God created for us to have him more of a integral part of our economy. We don't have to depend upon market mechanisms. We don't have to fear mammon. When we have the land, we have God to depend on, to increase the rains, to increase his goodness. And he promises that if we obey his commandments, he'll take care of us.